0: Future of Finance podcast, where finance finds its future.
1: Hello everybody and welcome to our webinar, hosted in conjunction with our partners at Trade and Invest Wales and Fintech Wales, What a Blockchain Economy Will Look Like. I'm Dominic Hobson, co-founder of Future of Finance, and I'm delighted to moderate our discussion this afternoon. At least some of the bookshelves you can see behind me are groaning with texts published in 2016 or 2017 with titles such as Blockchain Revolution how the technology behind Bitcoin is changing money, business, the world and life in general, or how blockchain will transform the way we work and live. Now, 2016 and 2017 were, of course, to borrow from the famous Gartner hype cycle for emergent technologies, the very peak of inflated expectations. We now seem to be ascending the blockchain scope of enlightenment towards the blockchain plateau of productivity. So the time seemed ripe to ask ourselves, is blockchain, Like electricity or the internal combustion engine before it. Not a single purpose technology useful for creating cryptocurrencies and their various derivatives, but actually a general purpose technology capable, as those futurists promised four or five years ago, of transforming how we live, we work and we play. And we of course are called Future of Finance, our partners are FinTech Wales, and we only have an hour. So we've decided to stick to the blockchain financial economy rather than the blockchain economy in total. And frankly, even that terrain is terrifyingly large. So we're fortunate that in mapping its contours, we can call upon the knowledge and experience of four experts. Mish Katesha is co-founder and chairman of Finboot, which has developed Marco, an ecosystem which brings together blockchain technologies in one place, connecting multiple ledgers simultaneously. It enables companies to incorporate blockchain within their value and supply chains, bringing traceability, transparency, and compliance and it has multiple applications, not just in financial services, but to all sorts of supply chains. Matt Shields is Director of UK Operations for SimbaChain, which is a cloud-based enterprise platform which aims to make blockchain adoptions straightforward, secure and scalable through the use of a low-code smart contract designer, a unified API and support for multiple blockchains. Sharon Henley is chief product officer at CoinCover, which uses a combination of insurance and cybersecurity to protect digital assets from being lost or stolen. Nicola McNeely is a partner and head of technology at law firm Harrison Clark Rickerbees. Now, in addition to our panellists, we do also, of course, have you, our audience and all five of us encourage everybody watching or listening to submit questions and comments throughout this webinar by using the Q&A functionality at the bottom of your Zoom screens rest assured I will not be saving those comments and questions up to the end, but address them as we go along, so the audience, if you choose to be, can be an integral part of this discussion right from the outset. I'd like to start our discussion by asking an obvious question, it's not intended to be an entirely negative one, but I think it is an important one, and that is, is blockchain living up to its promise? The original vision of the blockchain economy was this trustless, transparent financial economy in which centralized, intermediating governments and corporations and banks were replaced by leaderless, non-hierarchical, decentralized autonomous organizations, so-called DAOs, and in which all transactions were priced, were invoiced, and were paid in non-state currency. Now, So far, we've seen that trustlessness hasn't gone that well. Cryptocurrency markets have acquired a reputation, justified or unjustified, for scams and thefts, many of which have been inside jobs. Transparency has also proved an obstacle to adoption, particularly by in my institutions. Most grown-up corporations don't want to share their private information, and nor, in fact, do most individual consumers. As for DAOs, their governance, which has made some progress away uh, from the original Bitcoin model, but it has proved open, in many cases, to manipulation uh, and even to hacking. As for transaction processing, as a transaction processing mechanism, the technology has proved slow and very hard to scale, and efforts to solve that have not been entirely successful. Last but not least, non-state currencies. Bitcoin is not being used for payments, except in very small uh, and dark corners, sometimes dark corners of the economy. Uh, uh, And Indeed, far from the original vision, it's state versions of digital currencies, namely central bank digital currencies, or CBDCs, which look like becoming the norm. Now my question to our panelists is, are all these obstacles, which I have just described, the classic uh, birth pangs of a new technology, which is being introduced on top of existing systems and processes, or are they signs of a fundamental flaw in the technology itself? Uh, in short, is the original vision, a very compelling vision, in my view, uh, promised to us by uh, blockchain technology, does it remain Intact? Are we going to get to this unintermediated marketplace, free of these hierarchically managed uh, large corporations, free of fiat currency, uh, and with minimal laws, regulations, and regulators? Is that still possible, Sharon? Could I throw that question at, at you first, since you're in the at the very heart of uh, uh, of the blockchain financial economy?
2: Absolutely. And hi, everybody. Welcome. Um, I think I think this is <laughs> perhaps a loaded question. I-, I think absolutely there was a vision, um, but it-, it was a vision. It, it wasn't a roadmap. It-, it wasn't a you know a how-to guide. It wasn't a this must be done. It was a vision. And if you kind of think about how the global economy has kind of come together to try to map out this vision and bring it to life, I would actually say that we've made huge um, leaps and bounds into trying to, to progress that vision. And I think that, yes, you're always going to have, let's call them teething pains when you, when you come out with a new technology. And you're, you're always going to have somebody that, that, a bad actor that uses the technology in a way that is not for good. And I think that that doesn't matter if it's blockchain, the internet, anything right we've seen in the past people use it for good people use it for bad and i think that that is just typical of technology and i think for for us we we really should just kind of like look at all of the positive things so i think that all of the the items that you mentioned um especially transparency and especially things like payments remittances and non-state currencies i think we really just have to kind of step back a little bit and think you know, some amazing things have happened, and I think specifically in the last year and a half, um, and I think COVID has actually been quite conducive to continuing to grow the industry. A lot has happened, and I and I think even some of the most the latest headlines of countries such as El Salvador accepting Bitcoin as as national currency. I think that 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 really has, you know, really come far. Would would we have thought five years ago that a country would actually adopt Bitcoin? Maybe not. We would have hoped hoped so, perhaps. But did we think it would really come to fruition? Perhaps not. But it has. Um, One could argue that it's a small country. But again, it's still a step in the right direction. Um, And I think that in terms of scams and thefts, certainly we had a lot more in the beginning. But if you plotted the number of scams, the number of thefts, as a ratio of adoption, as a ratio of currencies bought to market, as a ratio of assets under management, I think that you'll see very clearly, and certainly at CoinCover we map this, that the the risk and notorious nature has actually reduced dramatically um so it's always kind of lots of hype and headlines but if you actually dig down into the data you know it's it's becoming safer and a lot of us are doing an awful lot of work to make it trusted make it safe make it reliable um and and i think again it's a lot about thinking about where we have come from versus sort of a little bit of the the hold on hang ups and and stigma from the past because I think what, what I think is great about the industry is that essentially we all recognize that these are issues we all recognize that these could be seen as barriers to adoption and I think so many people are coming together to to look at solving the problems so that we can essentially build that roadmap to what was envisaged in the first place so I, I, for one, am very, very positive and very excited about how far we've come and, and how far we can go with this.
1: Thanks, Sharon. I'd like to ask uh, Matt in a minute to give us a, a flavor on the, that, the technical side of the, of the speed and scalability issues. But before I do, I'd like to ask uh, Nicola. Nicola, you're, um, you're a lawyer. Um, you're a, you're, you understand laws, you understand regulations, you're dealing with clients that uh, want, to in, want to invest in instruments created through this, this technology. Um, What's your view of of where we are? Uh, Is this technology now turned the corner from being a minority pursuit of of, um, young men with beards based in in Shoreditch and and Lofts in New York and becoming actually a technology which can be applied to mainstream activities across the funds industry, across the insurance industry, across the banking industry? Are we heading towards that plateau of productivity? As I mentioned at the outset, you're on, bear in mind, Nicola, you're on
0: mute. Sure, thank you. So there's there's a lot there's a lot to say about that topic in all honesty. But what I would say, just to get us off on the right footing, is that the first use case for blockchain technology was Bitcoin. It happened to be the first use case. But if I give you a pound for every time that people say, oh, blockchain, that's Bitcoin, isn't it? I'd be a very rich woman so what i would say is there's a fundamental lack of understanding of what the technology actually is and the underlying technology that sits below a, a, a blockchain and you know crypto, cryptography is a very very well known uh, technology you know the germans used it for the enigma cipher in the second world war um and distributed ledger technology has been around since the roman empire so they're very long well standing known technologies um Blockchain is the juxtaposition of the two, so putting those two technologies together and creating something quite special. Um, that technology has fundamental um, potential to change the way we work, the way we operate, the way we interact, and the way we work together on a whole host of levels. So, Bitcoin is one use case, and it's the first use case, um, and it has a very utopian view as to what to what Bitcoin should be, with the you know the the, the open Permissionless um, government, government excluding government, excluding central control um, vision. Um, but that doesn't mean that the technology can't be used in a, in a more commercial sense, in a permissioned way, in permission blockchain, in private blockchains. So the technology itself is fundamentally sound, but I think people have a lack of understanding about what this technology actually is. Much the same, I would say, as when when we moved to cloud computing so I remember having conversations um, about cloud computing back in the day and people just didn't see the need didn't see the benefits didn't see the use case it's taken 10 to 20 years to get where we are now but cloud is the norm so what I would say is that I've been working in blockchain since 2013 and I've literally seen the world change in that space of time so lots of people have um, been actively working towards making this a reality and I think that um, that that seismic change has already happened and it is happening and it will it will continue so you know the predictions for the income that will come from the blockchain industry is 3.1 trillion us dollars by 2030 so if you think about that um that's only eight that's eight nine years time um, so that's that's seismic that's huge um and you can you think about the potential of combining blockchain with other technologies we'll talk about that a little later but um it could, it could exponentially increase from there. So I do think we're getting there. And I think that it's just a natural evolutionary journey with technology that you have to go through some growing pains as part of that journey. Thanks, uh, Nicola. I'm gonna to come to Matt a bit about that technical, but just before I do, one of the points,
1: Nicola, that, that Sharon made was actually as, as a species, we tend to put new technologies to some ancient uses, like stealing money from other people and getting rich quick and, uh, and so on. And that's why we have laws and that's why we have regulations. Do you feel, as you look back to your experience over 2013, that the the laws and the regulations, I'm, I'm talking here purely of the UK, we could talk about this globally if you want. Do you feel they are keeping up with what is happening in the marketplace? Or do you find when you're advising clients that actually there are a lot of black holes you simply can't fill for them?
0: The law can never keep up with technology. Um, and so the law hasn't kept up with technology and regulation hasn't kept up with technology. But I think the regulators now are trying to engage with the, with technology businesses to understand better and to engage better and make sure that they regulate in the right way. Because if you don't regulate in the right way, you stymie um, innovation. And that's a really bad thing because there's a huge potential global um, market for blockchain. So if the regulators get it wrong, then they lose Massive contributions to GDP. So the regulators have got to get it right, but the law will never be there. It's always behind. So it is a huge challenge um, because we have to look at very ancient laws. You know, some of the laws we look back to are from 16th century, 17th century laws to actually apply in modern data blockchain technology. So it can be very challenging. Um, but what I would say is it's a contribution um, between. Working with the regulators, making sure you have an open dialogue with the regulators and then just steering the client very gently into the right place they need to be. But sometimes they can inadvertently go down a route that they don't don't expect will actually bring them within the regulated space. So they'll be focusing on one, one element or one aspect of it and won't see the other risk or the other risk factors that are there. So it is difficult. It's really difficult to navigate that space. And you're continually dodging the landmines. Um, that's what I would say.
1: Well, perhaps Nick, we need to go back to the 18th century, get a new Lord Mansfield to write a whole new commercial <laughs> law for this, this era, but, but uh, um, uh, let's not let's not stay with Lord Mansfield. Matt, uh, and I'm conscious you're being very patient there, and I want to come to you in a minute to talk about um, where we have had some successes in financial services. Um, but before I do, Matt, can you just give us some insight and maybe even some reassurance about the, the, the blockchain technology has problems of speed it has problems of scalability and we've had solutions like sharding uh, put forward but these don't seem to have solved the problem or am i wrong about that
3: well i think um you know blockchain is is still very early in its uh, in its kind of um adoption from a technology point of view things are still emerging uh and things are getting better all the time i mean if you look at uh, if you look at um something like Bitcoin, you know, the transactional throughput on, on, on something like Bitcoin is, is relatively low. So you're talking about seven to eight transactions per second. If you look at more modern uh, blockchain technologies, I mean, one simple chain that we use a lot of the time, Avalanche, uh, I mean, that can do four and a half thousand transactions per second. So I think the performance is improving over time and it's only gonna continue in improving. Um, so, What's made the what's
1: made the difference between that seven transactions a second in the classic blockchain and the four and a half thousand?
3: What are you doing differently technically? Can you tell us very quickly? Well, so it's it's mainly to do with the uh, the consensus algorithms, the way that um, the transactions are are, um, are agreed on, on on the chain by the various um, nodes in the system. Uh, so so blockchain uses um, uh, Bitcoin uses. Uh, uh, proof of work which requires each node to do a, a very expensive calculation which is where the, uh, the the energy efficiency concerns and also the, the, the speed of the the network um, comes into play more modern um, uh, more modern uh, blockchain implementations like avalanche use different consensus algorithms they use a proof of stake which doesn't require that um, that heavy calculation uh, so so the, uh, the the system is a lot more energy efficient but also it can it can handle um much greater transaction um, throughput. Just so the, the
1: so the audience understands proof of stake is where a, a small subset of the uh, of the nodes vote a block to go onto the chain as opposed to the full democracy which you get with the classic blockchain
3: of every node having to vote. So well, proof of stake. <laughs> I, appreciate, my, I have... appreciate I'm speaking metaphorically here, but, yeah, uh... <laughs> no, so, so for proof of stake, a validating node, so a node that's, that's validating the transaction that's being written to the chain, has to has to stake has to. Um, uh, place an actual value um against that against that transaction so they use pre-mined coins so there isn't a mining process you're not generating you're not generating um new coins as you do with a with a with a proof of um uh, a proof of work system you, you're you've got these pre um pre-mined coins and you stake those against the the transactions that you're making or forging they call it forging rather than uh, rather than mining for the for the transactions uh, and then when the transactions um successfully been uh, into chain back right so so what this does is it, it stops bad actors um, or or not stops but but this make transactions got the physical um, go up to those trans- transactions found to be uh, fraudulent. Or, or, or um, yeah, found to be fraudulent, then then that stake is is lost, is claimed by the uh, by the network. Okay, thanks, Matt. We, that
1: that that's that's helpful. Now, Nish, you've been, as I said, very patient. Uh, four and a half thousand doesn't sound like enough to support a modern, I don't know, the modern securities market or money market or FX exchanges, does it? So where where is where has blockchain been having its um it, it, its best successes? We, we you and I exchanged messages beforehand about, um, about about settlement itself. I'm talking of securities transactions there, but could easily be talking about, um, about FX or, or money markets as well. Um, we talked about KYC and AML. Um, we talked about increasing financial inclusion, in fact, um, particularly in developing markets. And we've talked about um, eliminating counterparty risk through atomic settlement. So w- where do you see, blockchain having made its most signal breakthroughs in the financial markets so far.
4: So I um firstly thank you and it's, it's a pleasure to h- listen to everyone's uh, views and I maybe I start by um by just saying you know for a technology to set a set it stand out and say we are going to completely overhaul and reshape the delivery of banking and financial systems as we know it at the get go was probably a big utopian statement that we're all working towards. I, I do hope personally um, that we don't get there because I fundamentally do believe in the, the rationale for the right kind of regulation, particularly when it comes to the movement of money. Um, and um, in addition to the comments that uh, Nicola made that regulators are, are catching up, and they do need to catch up. You know, they're not, not—they're by design, not visionaries. They're not creating it. They're catching up with what evolu- what the market evolution is of these new technologies and how they can be adopted. I mean, think back a few years and how the, uh, the regulators here have got sort of comfortable with e-money as a product, right? I mean, that didn't exist a few years ago, the idea that you have points that you can convert and use to store and transact value. But going back to the beginning, um, blockchain's vision was never going to be overnight. Um, But blockchain as a technology's vision, which is to change and revolutionise the way we bring trust to data, is something that is happening today. And it's it's industry agnostic. Um, We ourselves at Finboot have use cases and clients operating in the legal sphere in supply chains and oil and gas and chemicals and airlines um, and financial services. Um, The point here is bringing trust to data um, and the application that sits on top of uh, the technology, as Nicola was correctly saying, this is an old technology, an old, maybe an old hypothesis or framework that has become real because of cloud computing because of broadband internet connectivity. And that is further accelerated now in the way that we are all working uh, remotely and from home. And we're relying very much on more data and less um, face-to-face communication and trust in uh, in what we are deciding to do in our businesses, in our operations. So to come back to your uh, question, where are we seeing the successes? It's evident um, to me that we are seeing successes in what I call the wholesale market. So if it's a bank transacting with a bank, who is the counterparty um, sending and receiving? Um, Are they authorised? Do they have KYC, know your client, or AML, anti-money laundering clearance? Can we actually send send documents or send uh, finance to those counterparties? The process before blockchain was very analog, whether that was paper, phone calls, and that's an excuse, may I put it that way as a banker, and it's an excuse to charge very high transaction fees, very high leakage fees from the value of the actual transaction taking place. And that's And that's a leakage that goes away to fuel a very different process. It's a process that's governed by people and paper and documents and stamping and authorities. You don't need to take any of the authorization, the regulatory lens away from that. You just need to digitize the process. And that's what blockchain is enabling um, uh, to do very quickly. And the introduction of blockchain in those processes means that they... They are speeded up, so you don't need to be at the speed of avalanche, as Matt Matt was uh, mentioning, because sometimes these transactions do happen 12 a day, 15 a day, 20 a week, 50 a week, not a million a millisecond. So you don't need to be at the speed of Visa, and so the technology is very applicable today. As the technology gets better, it can become faster. But in those use cases, you don't need the speed. The speed is not a deterrent. But what it does do is reduce tr- dramatically the um, transaction fees and the transaction costs and the operational costs, forcing those operators to reevaluate what they're charging to their consumers, to the actual users of that platform, and what they are keeping themselves in in margin. So you're changing the industry, making it more usable from a consumer's perspective. It's faster, it's cheaper, making it potentially more profitable from the financial um, services provider's perspective, if they keep the entire margin, but you're changing it inside out. Now, the parts where you're in the community, and I I think to your question, Dominic, around financial uh, inclusion, um, and I spent 10 years doing this on the ground in India, building branches and helping people open bank accounts and educating them on how to use them. The parts in those local economies are not digitized. The last mile. Those are still cash economies. Um, They buy products in cash. Now, the direction has started. More and more have smartphones. In, in, In fact, a large number have smartphones. But the local economy still operates in cash. So what you're finding is cash gets taken to a point, maybe a branch, maybe a supermarket, maybe a local retailer. From that point it gets digitized and can be digitized using blockchain. So the reduction in fees, reduction in costs, reduction in speed or acceleration speed happens through that wholesale point to the other end where that uh, digital signal, the digital file needs to be converted back into cash. And used in the local economy. So as local economies are moving, but not at the same speed as blockchain and the introduction of technology, but point to point in the banking systems, as it were, blockchain is changing and revolutionizing
1: the way that we move and communicate money to each other. Um, I'd like to get Sharon's view on that financial inclusion, but before I do Nish, could I just ask you, you you've got direct experience of doing this on the ground. My observation is it's much easier to innovate in marketplaces where there isn't an established financial services industry, established networks, established financial institutions. I'm thinking here of, of, of say Africa, for example, and the in, in system, where the, the retail banks have in effect been bypassed uh, by telcos, if you like, um, because they were able to deliver a service. Everyone had a mobile phone, but not everyone had a bank account. Is it is part of our problem in a country like this, that actually there is just too much legacy system and institutions in the way?
4: It's a very good point. Um, I would disagree. Um, And the reason I disagree, I mean, even if you look at M-Pesa, so uh, M-Pesa, a a product of Safaricom, Telco, and prior to that, a product of Vodafone partnering with DFID to look at an innovation project in Kenya, which no one else wanted to fund. So it's come a long way and it's now become the de facto payment system uh, in, uh, in Kenya and it's expanding around the world. But interestingly, it's not had the same success outside Kenya. And part of the reason is the regulators caught up. And I'm not saying what M-PACER did was wrong, but when it started, the regulators arguably um, may not have fully understood the potential scale and impact that this payment system would have, but it is a payment system. It is not a bank and there is a big difference. Um, And I will put it from the eyes of the consumer, if I may, when I was building our operations in India, um, I realized straight away that while my business may fall over, the risk to the consumer cannot be one that if I go, they lose their cash, they lose their deposits. That is paramount. And in effect, what regulation does is secure those deposits, secure those banking um, uh, deposits you have against the government's balance sheet. And if an individual institution falls over, the consumer must not be put at risk. So an an environment where you don't have that kind of insurance or regulation um, puts consumers at risk. And particularly when you're dealing with those that are most vulnerable in our communities, that is a risk that I think is not acceptable um, and shouldn't be misrepresented by any organisation. We are seeing a lot of that happen in the UK, as well as outside the UK, where Customers think they're opening a bank account with security and insurance protection by the government. Should something go wrong? They are not. They are not protected. And that's where uh, the whole growth of this type of technology is also put at risk because of
1: bad actors. Thanks, Nish. Now, Sharon, you you heard Nish there talking about um, about financial inclusion, among other things. do you have um, a, a view that this is one of the major benefits of this technology and the ability of an organization like yours to to make to give people the assurance they need to get involved in it? Um, um,
2: yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's one of the promises of, of blockchain cryptocurrency in, in the financial space, and I think, unfortunately, the, the kind of the phrase banking in the unbanked just gets used way too much. And it, it kind of tends to be an awful throwaway statement these days. But I would agree with everything that, that Nisha said. And I kind of actually have a, a little bit of two different hats on with this. So at CoinCover, we, we embrace regulation. We, and and we, we look at how we can make cryptocurrency safe. And it's not just about building new, faster, smarter technologies. It's also aligning with, with regulatory regulatory controls, such as KYC. And the, the insurance product that, that we have, it took us a little while, but we actually consider ourselves like the FSIS or the in the US FDIC equivalent for cryptocurrency. And that basically is we keep your funds safe because we we absolutely recognize and we've done a lot of research and we we understand that people want to get into crypto, but they're fearful of hacking of risks of losing their money of not knowing what they're doing of the lack of control and so we absolutely embrace regulatory control so in terms of coin cover we absolutely looking at making it safe Um, but I, I also actually am on a board of directors of a company that's looking for financial inclusion and is is looking at blockchain, crypto usage for kind of the payments and remittances um, cross border. And I know that a lot of businesses are doing that. But I think it's also important to understand, again, that you have to look at the whole ecosystem and the laws and regulations of the land. So yes, we, we understand that usually in developing countries, they can often leapfrog the technologies and and go straight to a dumb phone or a smartphone, which can become their their payment gateway or their banking gateway. But it's not just as simple as putting the technologies in place. You, You still have to make sure you're compliant. You still have to do KYC for the customer you still have to make sure that even if you've got a mechanism to back up their money to return their money that you've got KYC to make sure it's going to the to the right person so it's it's we all have to kind of look at this as collective in that we, we look the technology can't stand alone just like the regulations can't stand alone and I think also one thing to point out is that it's a very global economy. And I think one of the we, we've got lots of different entities. So like the FCA or the SEC or every, every country essentially has their own regula- regulators. And we also have to think about well, how this actually works on a global scale, because the US, the SEC might do something that is misaligned with what China is doing or what the US, the UK is doing. And so it will also be a great day when those sort of like regulations get a little bit more aligned so that we understand collectively, globally, what is the security, what's an investment, it's it's all up in the air and right now it's, it's so hard to actually understand where we sit and I think a lot of people think that we're, we're anti-regulation and I think a lot of people are actually very pro-regulation. We just want some guidance, want some direction, want some clarity because pretty much I think most people that I know are happy to play within the rules but they just need to know what the rules are. So I, I apologize that's gone a little bit off, off track but in terms of financial inclusion, absolutely this is a promise of, of blockchain and I do truly believe that we will deliver it, but we, we have to deliver it beyond just new technology and disintermediating people and taking out the middleman. We have to completely look at the whole ecosystem.
1: So Could I ask you, Sharon, before I, I ask Matt, uh, just on one specific point, what I was driving at my original question was that if the payments network fell over, your insurance would cover uh, the deposits, if you like, of people who are invested in, in Bitcoin. Is that one of the events you would cover? Just a yes or no? Or...
2: Yes, yes, it is. I mean, there's it kind of depends what you mean on fall over. So in terms of cryptocurrency, the two biggest risks that we cover are either lost access. So obviously, with a crypto wallet, you've got your own keys. And if you lose your keys or if the payment gateway loses the keys and there's no access to the crypto, it's kind of still in the wallet. It's just not accessible. We cover that. We, we allow for accessibility. And then the second part is for theft, internal collusion of what happens if the cryptocurrency is actually stolen from your wallet. So it, it we, we cover both risk factors. So it sort of depends on what you mean by the, the payment gateway falls over, but if they go out of business, if there's internal collusion, they run off with the crypto. Um, yes, we, we, we cover that.
1: And just before I, I, I go back to Matt with another technical question, are, are you, were you convinced by his answer about the difference between proof of work and, and proof of stake? Are these long-term solutions to problems with speed and scalability in blockchain technologies?
2: Well, I think the, the proof of stake basically means that if you want to be a miner, you have to have, you know, skin in the game. So you put down some money, you buy the, the tokens, you you put, you put the tokens, you stake them in, in a node and you start mining. And that basically, you know, you, you become part of a community then, and so you're encouraged to do the right thing because everybody has skin in the game. And that is one of the aspects of why moving to proof of stake. Um, and so yeah, absolutely. I, but we, we talk about we, we talk about the networks like Ethereum and again, it's, it's not static, right? It, it's a vision and they all have a different roadmap. And we hear a lot about level two scaling. Um, we, we talk about roll-ups, etc. Et and I, I won't go into the technicalities of, of what they are, but they're basically lots of different players, hundreds of them, all looking at solving the problem of scalability, having more transactions. And it's it's still a work in progress. And when when we were talking about it earlier, you know, I think it's just the analogy of. Those of us that are old enough to have maybe, you know, used a 386 or a 486 computer, you know, 20 odd years ago. You know, we paid an awful lot of money for two megs of RAM, four megs of RAM. And then every time, you know, Windows or Apple updated, you kind of needed more RAM and you needed a bigger hard drive. And it's it's only really, I think, been in the last five or so years that nobody actually knows anymore how much RAM they've got in their computer. It just works. Right, and I think that's the same here. Is that there's teething problems, there's scalability, there's speed, and we're solving those problems in you know three five years. It'll be a no question anymore. It'll just work. It's it's just about where we are in the technology adoption curve, where we are in building it out. But we will get there. I, I'm absolutely confident. It's just evolution, growing pains. Thanks,
1: Sharon. Um, we're on a journey which are an evolutionary journey towards better technology. Matt, could I ask you about two other technical issues? One is that the very high transaction costs you see in, in classic blockchain, these, these so-called gas fees, which are way higher than you get in orthodox uh, financial markets. That's one technical issue. The other is this growing problem of incompatibility between blockchain protocols. You've got different types of protocols which don't enable you to move these digital assets freely between them. Uh, now I, I imagine solving these problems is part of the same journey that Sharon has just described. But how far along on the journey of solving those two issues—high transaction costs
3: and uh, incompatible protocols—are we? I mean, if we take the let's, let's take the second one uh, to start with the incompatible protocols. I mean, there's different ways of of, of approaching of approaching this, right? So at um, at Simba Chain, you know, we we provide a, a, an enterprise platform that's actually blockchain agnostic, So we support at the moment, um, nine different blockchains, uh, with, a, with a roadmap to support um, a number, a number more. And as, as new blockchains come along, and old ones um, fade into the background, you know, we will be adopting newer blockchains. So, you know, for, from our point of view, um, we can uh, using our technology, we can we can bridge those those different blockchains. So we have uh, um, uh, we, ha- we have we uh, have a database that connects to two blockchains, say, uh, and and can merge that data into a single place. So you can so you can transfer the data. You can see the the data across across multiple blockchains in a in a single place. Now that obviously is relying on on, on a technology layer above uh, the, the, the blockchains them the blockchains themselves. I mean, you can talk about actual protocol level um, interoperability, but the problem with that is it's it's the same as the classic. Um, it's a classic interoperability problem, right? So, so every time, you, every time you, want to, you want to make one blockchain compatible with another blockchain, you've got to build an adapter between those two blockchains. Every time a new blockchain comes along, you've got to build a new adapter. If you, if you, if you, if you work with um, uh, a, a bridging technology like, Simba, like Simba's enterprise platform, then you're building against that, against that platform. And then as new blockchains come along and as you want to w- interact with, with, with new blockchains, using the adapters within the platform rather than having to write those um, write those adapters every time you want to you want to do that um, uh, to do that compatibility Um, and if you move on to 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 sort of gas fees again those things are getting better with the newer evolutions of blockchain technologies again the the, the one that we use commonly avalanche the transaction fees on that are are far far lower I mean I think the the, the current transaction fees are, are tens of cents rather than you know, tens of tens of dollars, which is where uh, Ethereum um, mainnet is. So, you know, as as these new as these new blockchain technologies come out, things will get cheaper, things will get faster, uh, and it's just a matter of being able to, to pivot and adopt those those technologies as they come along.
1: Thanks, Matt. Um, Nicola, uh, you heard Sharon say that actually a lot of people operating in the blockchain uh, universe actually want to be regulated. Do you see a process of convergence going on here in which the traditional regulated industry is kind of getting closer to the upstart revolutionary blockchain uh, world. uh, And both sides recognizing they have something to learn from each other. And that if they pool their knowledge and, and indeed their client bases, they might create something genuinely valuable to consumers and to companies.
0: So that's a really big challenge because um, because potentially this technology completely disrupts financial systems. So potentially this technology could displace a lot of those uh, long-standing institutions. So and also intermediaries, so merchant acquirers, payment services, all of that. So potentially there's a there's a risk there that those industries could could be displaced by new technology. Um, so it's it's it, there's a number of different uh, there's a number of different routes. So you either you either ad- adopt the technology early and you engage with the tech disruptors that are that are operating in your market and you gain gain advantage there by buying them, which is what a lot of businesses are doing. So there are large corporates buying out tech businesses that can help them make sure that they're still surviving in 10, 15 years' time. Um, and there are others that are Putting their head in the sand of being ostriches and ignoring it and just say, well, we'll just continue on market dominance and they won't ever get market traction or they won't get to where they need to be and ignoring the problem. And then there's other people that actually are actively engaging in the industry. So, you know, Corda, for example, is, is a consortium of lots of big banks and financial institutions who've built out a permissioned um, private blockchain. Um, so it's, it, you know, it's, 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 it's not blockchain in the, in the normal sense of the word being the decentralized, and um, permissionless that we would all know blockchain to be, but in financial services systems, it's a usable system. So um, I think, I think um, some large industries are actually accepting that they can't ignore it any longer and are, are engaging, either doing it themselves or by um, engaging with, with some of the tech disruptors or buying those tech disruptors. Um, but but there, it's a mixed bag really. It, it really is a mixed bag. Um, I think there are still people that think that um, the, the 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 tech the technology is too far uh, too far from being adopted purely because we have no consistency in terms of global regulation, and that is the biggest challenge. Um, because these businesses, as Sharon and Nisha have said, and, and Matt are global businesses, so trying to operate in a global a global space where there's no regulatory consensus around this and the regulators in different countries are making different decisions all the time is very challenging. Um, so that I think that is stymieing it and is holding people back. You know, you've only got to look at what's happened in China over the last week and see what's happening to businesses there in the in the um, in the blockchain and crypto space. Um, it, it, it is causing issues. So I think um there's a real mixture, really. um Yeah. So a
1: mixture yeah China is certainly an interesting case where um we have an example of of non-banks actually taking business away from the banks on a major scaling at the same time they're um banning uh, crypto mining but uh, mm. China is a whole subject in itself which we won't discuss here um Nish but perhaps I could get you to follow up uh, some of what Nicola has been saying it strikes me that that if you're going to have these two worlds converging um, when I talk to traditional banks, one of the first problems they have is they can't attract developers who know about blockchain to work with them. In fact, developers of any kind, because they're such stale, boring organisations and nobody wants to work for a big, ugly bank. Um, but at the same time, these big banks are, are, in many cases, quite keen to get into blockchain, but they want to do it in a permissioned way. They don't want the traditional classic public open network. They want to do permission networks. And I, I wonder... Um, what your thoughts are on those two issues? I mean, is there a sort of short, are there are not enough developers to, to satisfy the traditional industry as well as the, the blockchain industry? And are companies thinking the right way if they think the future is through permissioned blockchains rather than public ones? And ultimately, will the public and the private merge into one giant network of networks? Yes. Uh, look, <laughs> all, all very good all right. questions. A lot of those questions. I'm, I've yeah. given
4: Um, Thank you. And and I uh, concur with uh, Nicola's comments. So let me just take this at a slightly different level. Okay, Um, um, if I look at um, the question of banks, okay, it's important also to remember that we are undergoing probably the the largest seismic change in in the, the, the makeup of financial actors, whether they're in banking, they're in payments, they're in insurance, they're in credit. Um, Whatever of those categories you looked at, used to be all four of those were the mainstay of a bank. You remember some of those on the call, uh, particularly me, are old enough to remember bank insurance. When I started in banking, the whole concept was sell multiple products to to the same customer, ideally a, a bank account holder. And just lose money on
1: the bank account, so you could sell them other things. Yeah, mm-hmm.
4: absolutely. I and mean, then as regulators kicked in, we said, "Well, actually, you could, you can't. You know, you need a different type of protection and regulation for an insurance customer as you do for a bank, uh, a, a savings holder, and so on." Um, but in today's world, we have a myriad of actors who provide banking deposit facilities. We have a myriad providing insurance. We have a myriad for payments. Just think about payments. You know, PayPal. Square, you know, some of these are um, um, extraordinarily valued. I don't mean that they're they're rightly or wrongly valued, but just look at what's happened and how they are um, becoming real competitors to the traditional banking model, right? So you can't think of banks themselves not being able to attract the right developers. Actually, that market is completely changed. Uh, the payment providers are also a competitor for that development resource. Um, and they are providing arguably much faster technology solutions, so including block- using blockchain and, and other technologies than the banks are because they had no legacy. And that is a huge plus when you're a bank and you're starting with a branch network and staff and people costs and every day you're managing that cost. I read a statistic. It's about six hundred and fifty thousand pounds per annum in this country to keep one bank branch open. Um, And depending on the type of customer mix you have, it's very unlikely that that is a profitable endeavor. Um, Compare that to a new entity that starts from scratch with a technology platform. It's a completely different evolution. So, so hopefully that's that's kind of one part to think about. It's not banks, but it's a competitive environment for talent. Even us, as a start, as a as a growing scale up now, um, we you know we are in the market for blockchain talent, and our approach the Finboot approach uh, was to create the Marco platform where you don't need to know what blockchain is or how to code on it. You take the Marco language and you code or build applications directly from that. So we've tried to solve that problem using our own technology product. Um, Coming on to, to your other question, which is this um, area of convergence. So we are seeing industrial clients. So remember these are companies and corporations that are banked by those um, bankers and financial service operators right so it could be an an old company um, receiving credit um, having banking facilities in each case the bank requires verification and proof of service now if you're if you're providing a loan against an asset You want to know what that asset is and that it truly exists. You're providing a loan against supply chain finance. You want to know that that product is making its way towards the customer. Well, hold on. If your client uses blockchain in their supply chain, it is simply a step, a switch almost, to enable that data to be sent to the banking and finance provider. So whether the bank itself wants to adopt blockchain in whatever guise, private, public, the clients that they are banking are already doing so. And we are just one step away from bringing the two together. So That's a very interesting uh, way to look at this. Now, the third point you raised was this potential collaboration or linkage, um, if we really think to the future, between public uh, blockchains and private blockchains. and A comment that Matt made earlier that I want to respond to. Um, At FinBoot, we do not see the world where there will be one blockchain environment. I think Matt and SimbaChain share that uh, that view. We built Marco to be blockchain agnostic, and we already operate across multiple blockchain networks uh, using our technology. And that's one of the reasons why our clients choose our technology, because they do not want to be restricted to a private um, application of ethereum when in the future the public may be available today i cannot see and we've not been asked any of our clients and these are live clients that our longest implementation in full production mode is is three years Um, live clients saying to us i want to store my data on a public blockchain network The risk and the gas fee, as you said, is an unknown and you can't build a business case around it. So today we're seeing clients start in what they understand with an understanding that the technology, certainly that we offer, allows them to be future proofed, which means that tomorrow if a public blockchain at some part of um, their their data structure, so that what it means is they don't want to put all their data onto a public blockchain, but they may need to put some of it in, in a particular use case onto a public blockchain, we can enable that. Does that mean we're gonna see a connectivity of a two? Definitely we will get there, but there will not be one blockchain. There'll be blockchains for a use, and those will be multiple. There'll be Ethereum in different shapes and sizes and different colors. There'll be different labels given to them, but we will see an environment of different blockchains and it's for enterprises in financial services and in um, in other areas to understand that. and choose technologies which can help them be future-proofed.
1: Thanks, I'd like to come back to that blockchain and blockchains in a minute, but um, uh, before I do, I'd like to, 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 to say, Nish, you've had a, a fan chat uh, from Jack Davis, a member of our audience, who says he, he, he thinks you're spot on about providing trust to data. Bitcoin arguably sets the precedent for the first immutable database. So big potential anywhere, long-term trust is required in data. So um, at least one member of our audience, since a big audience agrees with you, so initially this big success there. Um, Sharon, one form of, uh, of data, and then we're into our last 10 minutes here, so I'd be grateful if you could keep your, your answer as really brief, although this is a subject in itself. Um, digital identity is one of the uh, hopeful prospects which, which blockchain gives to all sorts of businesses and all sorts of consumers. Um, is that um, the solution to the problem which we've discussed this afternoon, of corporations being anxious about, uh, about privacy, about bad actors, about onboarding people who turn out to be financial criminals and so on. Can it solve all those problems?
2: Well, I think I think solving all of those problems is a, a, is a big ask. But I think if we if we step back and we talk about digitalized identity, certainly it helps unblock a lot. Um, and, I, and I'm thinking particularly with things like KYC, so that is one area that the regulators are, are very mindful of. Um, anti-money laundering obviously is, is another area. And I think that digital identity will be very helpful if there's sort of like a unified way of doing digital identify, identity. So, we seem to have seen a lot of different players come up with different solutions. And the thing is that they're just kind of like not interchangeable. So I might need to sign up with a digital identity for one platform, and then there's a different flavor for another platform. And they they just kind of like don't cross over. So this is like a really difficult one, because I think personally, I feel that that Probably needs to be sort of like government or country led, in that you have probably a national standard for digital identity that then can be used on on blockchain. So I think it's a little bit chicken and egg. We sort of need something that's interoperable between different chains, between different countries, um, and then I think it does unblock a lot of a lot of problems. Um, but, it, but it's not a solution that, that is going to solve everything. Um, I think it can help. I, I think it can give some people anonymity when they're doing transactions on blockchain, but it also enables, um, we talk a lot about zero knowledge proof, which basically is proving who you are without disclosing information is is, is kind of a, the crux of it, which I think is is great. And I think that that will also open a lot of doors, But in the in, this is a subject that could go on forever, but I, it, it's not the be all and end all. It, it will help, but not it, it won't be the whole solution. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Sharon.
1: Um, we're now into our last five minutes and four minutes, to be precise. Um, Matt, uh, um, a, a last question for you. One of the things Nish said there was that um, uh, the application he's built, the great thing about it is you don't have to know how to code. And is the missing piece, I think this often when I look at what's going on in, in blockchain in DeFi and elsewhere, it's almost like it's another world. Is the piece we're missing here some very simple interface structure that enables anyone to use the blockchain technology? So we'll be indifferent, to whether it's blockchain or some other technology underlying the application that we're using and how close are we to getting something like
3: that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can draw you can draw the analogy with, um, with the original Internet. Right. So when you when you first started. Um, using the internet you needed to know uh, all the all of the different protocols and how they how they interacted and using that was was quite arcane and i think i think blockchain is is the same at the moment if you're if you're working with blockchain natively it it requires quite a lot of skill quite a lot of knowledge and quite a lot of experience um at simba chain that's that's one of our sort of reasons for being that's what we try and do so so we provide um uh, a way to interact with with blockchain in in a much more developer friendly way so we provide a Uh, uh, an automatically generated um, unified web service API to any smart contract. So you you point Simba Chain, Simba Enterprise platform at a smart contract on uh, on a blockchain network and it will generate a restful API that pretty much any developer should be able to converse with. And and, and along along with that, we've got a um, uh, a graphical uh, tool for being able to graphically build smart contracts, which means that non-programmers can build smart contracts right you don't need to know about the the the, the language that you need that the, the solidity language that's used to uh, to write smart contracts you can just use this graphical tool if you understand your domain you can build your own smart contracts deploy them to a to a, a blockchain and off you go and i think as as we as the sector matures you will get more more and more tools like this that will improve this that it just means that the the actual blockchain, the blockchain technology itself just fades into the background. You don't see that anymore. You, you're, you're talking to these, these much um, simpler and, and more uh, developer-friendly uh, APIs and tools. Thanks,
1: Matt. We haven't really had time to talk about smart contracts, which would again, could be a, a, a webinar itself. A um, last question for you, um, Nicola, one of the ways perhaps to make blockchain technology friendlier is to, is to make greater use of, of artificial intelligence, of, of AI. Are you seeing among your clients use and rising interest in in AI in their their day-to-day business and how it might interact with blockchain
0: or not? So I think it's quite early days in terms of the interaction but what I would say is that I think the evolution of adding together blockchain and AI is similar really to adding cryptography with DLT. I think it potentially has that much of a dramatic impact and the reason is I think it's the perfect combination. So you put blockchain which is your decentralized encrypted data piece going back to what Anish was saying about data and trust in data and then you put that with AI which is your engine or your brain which enables data analytics and decision making from that data set so you put those two together and it's got this perfect symbiotic relationship so it's it's still very new so there are people doing this so there's there's a business called Singularity Net Uh, which is creating diverse data sets, combining AI and blockchain. Um, uh, And and there are other use cases. So, for example, um, data protection. So to encrypt storage of sensitive personal data, you'd use blockchain and AI, and then you can use those data feeds to continually improve and continually learn using AI technology. Manetizing data, you know, monetizing data by Facebook and others is a huge piece and you can do that using blockchain and AI technology. So I think we're probably um, a, a way off um, combining the two technologies, but it would be interesting to see um, where, where they could potentially go. But there's, I think there's huge potential for combining the two um, because they're both data-driven. So you've got the encryption of data and then you've got the analytics of data um, and you put those two together. It's very, very powerful.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Thanks, Nicola. Um, our, our time is up, but I'd like,
1: Nish, to give you a chance to sort of um, wave us out. And I'd like to put to you a question. At the very beginning, we talked about the, the blockchain vision. If I look at how the Internet has shaped the economy over the last uh, 20, 25 years, the most dominant businesses are these platform businesses like Amazon, like Uber. And they stand between the uh, the, the customer and the, and the provider. In fact, they almost take ownership of, of the customer. Now, the, the promise of blockchain was actually of, of disintermediation and not of platformization. Can we look forward, as we look forward, I don't know, five, 10, 20 years of a movement away from this platformed economy towards something very close to the to the vision which, which blockchain has, a kind of network of networks or blockchain of blockchains, which you uh, described um, a, a minute ago. Um, and I, And I see large corporations investing, a lot of them still talking about platforms. Are they kind of... Um, fighting yesterday's war, uh, should they actually be thinking more about this this the blockchain vision of decentralized um, peer to peer future or not? Yeah, and
4: I think, I think there's a lot there's a lot of themes that you you mentioned, in that, But let's just if I sorry, I wasn't very articulate, but I hope I try and reconcile to platforms versus network of networks is what I'm really trying yeah, to say. Absolutely, I like that analogy. A network of networks, whether that's peer to peer that could be an application in it you know that's um is that the direction we're heading in i certainly hope so um it doesn't mean to my earlier points that i see the world without or disintermediating by accident or by design the regulatory environment um as i said earlier i think in certain cases it's very it's very critical but you're right someone like an amazon going direct someone like an apple going direct and their ability to bring an Apple Pay and their ability to then move an Apple Pay into replacing um, our banking systems. You know, Um, I think the biggest opportunity and challenge for us to say we are absolutely moving to a world of network of networks is one where the central banks disintermediate the banking system in itself and have direct consumer wallets, which is what's being envisaged by central bank digital currencies. Um, Imagine that we, you know, if you're a central bank, you no longer need to rely on the banks telling you what's going on in the economy um, and being that flow of liquidity back and forth to manage peaks and troughs um, uh, in in general economic uh, movement, but you can do it direct. And that's quite a, a scary and yet exciting prospect. And if that's, if that's the end of the curve, there's a long way to go, but you can see that that direction is now becoming more evident. And whether that's in two years, four years, it's not 10 years, um, but we're heading in that direction. So yes, in short, networks of networks, and I think they will be blockchain networks, is the direction of travel.
1: It's a lovely paradox to end on the central bank as the key to decentralised uh, economies. I love that idea. Um, Sadly, I think we must stop there, uh, although there's still lots to talk about. Um, uh, I'd like to thank our panellists, uh, Nish Nish, um, Katesha from Finboot, Matthew Shields from Simba Chain, Shan Henley from CoinCover, and Nicola McLean from Harrison Clark, rickerbys And uh, thank you to our audience as well for for listening and for your, your comments. But for now,
2: it's goodbye from the five of us.